Welcome to Bruce Styles for Monday, June 29th, 2015, brought to you from Arlington, Texas. I'm Chris. I'm Sawyer. And I'm Travis. This week we'll be covering the basics of beer, Beer 101. Check out our website, brewstyles.com, where you can leave us feedback and requests for us to discuss your favorite beer styles. Send us an email to ask us some questions and we will get them answered on the air. While on our site, you can also find a link to the BJCP website. There you can download your own copy of the BJCP style guidelines and get more information about how to become an official BJCP certified beer judge. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash brewstyles. Like our page and post some comments to help us bring you the information you need. All right, welcome back to Brew Styles. And uh, today is our Beer 101 episode. And uh, how's everyone doing today? Travis? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Enjoying summer, that's for sure. Yeah, it's, it's getting hot out there today. What about you, Chris? I'm glad we're inside drinking beer. Heck yeah, man. Beer's good. We I don't have an think indoor studio. Yeah, I don't think of a better way to spend my Monday than being inside drinking some beer. Yeah, mm-hmm. Monday's always good drinking beer inside. Yep. All right, so what's this episode about? Beer 101. I think we had a, a phone call from a listener. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the phone call. So we need to listen to that voicemail from our Google number. Which is 682-422-7398. That's 682-42-BREW8. Ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> hey. So give us a call on that number, and if you have any questions, you can do it that way, or you can just email us. Either way will work. But it's more fun to listen to your voicemail, so please call us. Yeah, so uh, here's the voicemail that we got this week. Hey, Bruce Styles. My name is Kelly, and I am calling from Colleyville. I want to know more about the basics of beer and brewing. It would be awesome if you could do an episode on that. Thanks, guys. <laughs> cool. Wow. <laughs> what? It's cool. You both said cool at the exact same time. Oh, did you say cool? I didn't yeah. hear him say that. Sorry. I heard it, so it was kind of funny. My bad. Anyway, that's a great question, Kelly. Uh, the whole point of this episode is for us to just go through lots of different um, aspects of beer and just explain a couple of things. If you don't know much about beer just getting into it, then this would be a fantastic episode to really listen to and, and get a lot of information from. Yeah, we're going to go through pretty much everything from A to Z. Uh, as far as beer is concerned, A would be alcetahide and Z would be zinc. Wow. Um, Actually, are we dealing no, with the acetaldehyde table? Acetaldehyde. Yeah. Nobody knows how to pronounce that word. Yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, so yeah. Um, so let's word. just get right into it. We were just kidding about the acetaldehyde to zinc A to Z because that's pretty advanced stuff. Today we're talking about the basics of beer, Beer 101. And you can't get any more basic than the ingredients of what it's made of. And uh, as far as the ingredients of beer, there's four main ones that you're going to find in every beer uh, for the most part. And that's going to be malted barley, that's your grain, hops, yeast, and water. Those are the four main ingredients. You can't have more, you can't have other ones, but those four are pretty much going to be present in every beer style that we've talked about. There's actually a uh, German purity law called the Reinheitsgebot which uh, went into effect uh, about 1480s, I think it's 1487 to be precise, and they were saying that the only things that could be in beer 
were the three things, barley, hops, and water. That was before they understood exactly how yeast happened, uh, you know, how yeast affected the beer. But they've since changed it to where it included yeast. So that's a good uh, starting point, I think. I agree. That's funny. So by law, beer could only have those ingredients in it. It could not have anything else. And uh, a lot of people are still very traditional about that today and still maintain that beer should only have those ingredients and nothing else. So let's go through those four uh, to start with and get a little bit more in-depth on what they are. We'll start with malted barley. And so that's your grain. And it's the malted barley that has been allowed to germinate, and then they kiln to stop it. And so they'll have it uh, spread out and then wet it, and then it starts to starts to germinate. You get little sprouts. And then they'll heat it up, stop that germination, and then uh, that stops it there. The reason that they do that is to create enzymes on the outside of the shell, uh, which will help with yeast production and uh, converting sugars uh, to uh, the smaller strains that, that the yeast need to convert that later. Um, so the reason that we start with the, the malted barley is it provides those fermentable sugars for the yeast to consume, and which they uh, eventually convert to carbon dioxide and alcohol. And uh, the yeast are really what create the beer. Uh, brewers just provide a good environment for the yeast to create the beer. So they are nature's true brewers. Yeah, the whole point of the, the malts is to create those sugars for the yeast to consume. Absolutely. That, that gives, it the, uh, gives it the fuel that they need to survive. <clears throat> and so we start with a base malt, and that's a very light, a light malt. It uh, hasn't been kilned. It's not, uh, not very caramelized at all. And uh, that accounts for a large percentage of the grain base. In, regardless of what style you do, whether it's a, a light American lager or a heavy Russian imperial stout, you're always going to start with a big percentage of a light base grain. And then from there, the longer the grains have been kilned, that changes the color and flavor, and that helps to account for your roastiness or your dark colors or your caramel sweetness, things like that. I think it also affects the level of sugar content also. The more you kiln it, the less sugar you're going to get. That's why you start with the base grain, so you can get the fermentable sugars. The more darker kilned grains that you add are less sugar content, more flavor, aroma, and color. Exactly. And so you're going to need those light grains that have all the, uh, all the enzymes on the outside that are uh, there to convert the sugars into the more fermentable sugars that yeast need. <clears throat> so that's the, uh, that's the base grain. And then uh, from there, we move on to hops, which are, uh, it's the flowering cone of a perennial vining plant. So you've probably seen a picture of it. It kind of looks like an upside down pine cone. And honestly, that's really what it is. It's, it's a, a cone that flowers off of a plant. And so they'll take those and uh, they, can, they can smash them up. And then on the inside, you've got this little yellow powder, which is called lupulin. And that's, uh, that's what provides the compounds that we're looking for in the beer. Uh, hops impart several things into the beer. They uh, impart bitterness, provide aroma and flavor, they act as a natural preservative, and they ward off spoilage over time. When do you put your bitterness hops into the, the boil? Well, you're going to add We're hops gonna... at many times during the boil. And, and we'll, we'll talk more about the brewing process later. Yeah, right Chris now we're going to cover the brewing process. Ingredients. Uh, but that's definitely something important to know is that hops do more than just one thing. Right. Uh, we can get hops from lots of different places, but they really thrive in climates that are, are similar to the ones that grapes do. So in places like the Pacific Northwest, 
European areas and the Czech Republic, they provide a, a very fruitful area for hops. And uh, more recently, New Zealand has become a, a high producer of hops as well. Then we're going to move on to our third ingredient, yeast. And that's really the workhorse of what creates a beer itself. And at its base level, yeast are bacteria. And they're single-celled organisms that are responsible for fermenting the beer. Brewers don't ferment the beer. The yeast do. And all brewers are doing, like I said earlier, was creating a quality environment for the yeast to do their work. And what they do is they convert fermentable sugars into alcohol and other byproducts. And this, this is what... Uh, gives the beer, it, it changes it from a very sweet thing to a more balanced between the bitter and the sweet. It gives it alcohol, it gives it carbonation, and um, depending on the yeast strain, it could give it some phenols, which uh, we talked about in our Saison episode that we talked about last week, and uh, lots of really interesting and vibrant flavors and aromas. They're living organisms, they're alive, and so they're affected by the environment. If you have your beer too hot, too cold, then that's going to affect the yeast. So you have to treat it as such. And there's two main main uh, yeast strains that uh, Sawyer is going to talk about whenever we get into the general styles later on in this episode. But you have ale yeast and lager yeast. Ale yeast are top fermenting. They uh, they warm ferment at between a 50 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. <clears throat> that's right, not Celsius. That would be <laughs> crazy hot. And because they ferment at hotter temperatures, they produce a lot of esters. So it's going to be uh, more intense, more flavorful, more aromatic than a lager. And a lager is going to be the opposite of that. It's bottom fermenting, cool fermentation between 44 and 59. And they produce low esters. And a lot of people like that because it's a cleaner flavor. You're not going to get uh, a whole lot of just intense notes. And for several styles, you want a very clean, easy-drinking not necessarily intense and over-the-top beer. And so that's where the lager yeast are going to come in. Now, our fourth ingredient is one that a lot of people overlook, and that's water. Water is very important. You don't think about it, but it is, it, because it's the largest ingredient in your beer. It's what you start with. The, a lot of things affect the, uh, the flavor of the beer, and things like that come from the water. The pH balance of the water affects the flavor and the yeast productivity. If you come from an area where your natural water source has maybe it's high in uh, alkalinity it's it's high in sulfides lots of things then that's going to affect how the yeast live and how they produce uh, how they work in the beer but that being said natural mineral natural minerals are required for yeast health so you can't have a very quality beer made from distilled water you need those natural things that come from uh, come from the water <laughs> Yeah, if you've got some kind of reverse osmosis system set up in your house and you're trying to homebrew, that's really going to be a big detriment to your beer. You want to use, um, you know, treated water, not treated as in like chemicals, but treated as in it's it's clean, but it still has all those natural minerals. Tap water is actually probably the best thing that you can do for your beer, unless you're going to do a whole lot of water treatment, which we'll talk more about that in the brewing process section. I remember whenever I was a, a new home brewer reading uh, Charlie Papazian's book, The Home Brewer's Companion, uh, he said pretty much if your water tastes good, then use it. Right. So if you if you can drink water straight from the tap, you're like, you know what, this is fine. Well, then your beer is going to taste fine too. Yeah, the part of uh, the country that we're in, uh, Arlington, Fort Worth, actually, I didn't realize this until I started doing some research on it, but we actually have some of the best water in the country, especially if you're uh, a home brewer. So, 
Yeah, it's a uh, it's a good place to live. That's for sure. Yeah, and uh, there's there's some styles that really depend on the uh, the local water uh, chemistry in order to create the specific just the specifics of the style. For example, the Czech Pilsner as a style uh, from the Czech Republic area. It has a very soft water and it's free of minerals, and that that has a part uh, plays a big part in creating the Pilsner flavor and aroma. On the other hand, if you have English ales, which they use the Burton on Trent water, it's very high in sulfates and calcium. And so that's going to create a, uh, its own personality and profile on its own. And so if you're trying to recreate one of these classic styles, well, you have to pay a you have to pay attention to the water chemistry. Right. Another uh, style that I wanted to mention was a Scottish ale. Uh, that's very water specific also and you know we have some experience brewing that mm-hmm. and it's it's really hard to get the the peatedness i don't know that's really a word i just made up but you don't want to add peat specifically to your scottish ale it's not going to be to style but if you have the scottish water uh it's got a little bit of peatness in it already and that's where that comes from so yeah and that's why i say that the water is often overlooked but it plays a pretty Pretty important role in a lot of styles. Yeah, exactly. So you want to pay really close attention to your water. So just to sum up, those four aspects of the ingredients, I know that was a lot of information very quickly. Yeah. But um, basically you've got your the sweetness coming from the malt, um, your bitterness coming from the hops, uh, the yeast will eat the sugar to create the alcohol, and the water is essentially your base to make everything uh, happen. So That's right. You're going to have those four things. Uh, pretty much in every style there are some things that you can add also and we're going to call those adjuncts which uh, <clears throat> sometimes they're added for different reasons often they are used to replace malt content or they can use to be uh, add adding desirable flavors sometimes uh, brewers will choose adjuncts over malt due to uh, cheap cost or because they're more available but it's uh, not always like that for example rice and corn can be used to lighten the body and flavor but they're also cheaper and so a lot of the uh, the mass-produced American light lagers that you'll find are uh, brewed with a large percentage of rice and corn because it's cheaper and it lightens the body. You can also use things like oats that uh, thicken the body and head, and so you'll see those in maybe an oatmeal stout, which gives it a very thick, uh, viscous flavor and, and mouthfeel. You can also add things like sugars and syrups. Depending on the flavor, it adds fermentability and can change the flavor depending on what you add. And there's also several beers that are brewed with wheat. And we'll get into some of those in future episodes, uh, such as Hefeweizens and wheat ales. And that adds flavor and aroma in certain styles. So that's, uh, like Chris said, that's a lot of information all at once. But we did want to go through the ingredients, just a little bit about what they do and why they're in there. But uh, we'd like to get more into the brewing process which Chris will talk about now. All right, so next we're going to start talking about the brewing process a little bit. Now, you could think about this as uh, the homebrew side or commercial. I'm going to try and keep it as generic as possible so you can really kind of relate them to both aspects of brewing beer. So uh, if you're doing all-grain homebrewing or um, the commercial side, you start with the mash. So what you're going to do is you're going to Get your mash water at a specific temperature, and that would depend on uh, the style that you're doing, what you're trying to get out of the beer, etc. Uh, if you have a, a lower mash temperature, then you're going to get more sugar, 
uh, fermentable sugar. If you do a higher mash temperature, you're going to get more mouthfeel, uh, less fermentable sugar, that sort of thing. And what exactly would you mash in? Uh, you mash in what they call a mash tun. That's spelled T-U-N. And you basically, you're going to put all your grain in there, uh, specialty grain, base grain, everything. And you're going to put your water in there. You're going to let it sit for a while. Uh, when you're home brewing, you're normally mashing about 60 minutes. And that's going to convert all those starches and everything in the grain to the fermentable sugar. Yes, everything that we talk about on the homebrew level is done on the commercial level, just at a much bigger scale. Commercial breweries have a mash tun, but it's a very large tank. It's a large vessel that'll hold uh, a larger volume of water uh, versus what homebrewers do, which can be uh, as small as a picnic cooler. Yeah, so I mean, when you're brewing, it it's not a quick turnaround. It, it takes minimum maybe two weeks all the way up to months, depending on the style. And so if you're a commercial brewer, you want to do everything in very large quantities so that you know you're, you can produce your product in enough volume that it's available to your consumers, but and not so much that you still have the space to keep brewing other beers. So you have to kind of keep that in mind. And I imagine that's a very difficult thing for commercial brewers to determine is how big do I want this batch to be mm-hmm. to where I can provide for my customers but not take up so much real estate inside my brewery that I can't be working on other projects at the same time. So the next part of the brewing process is uh, after you mash, you will lauder, drain off um, the the sweet wort is what we call it, and uh, you're going to get all that water out of your mash tun. Or young beer. Yes, wort or young beer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so next, you, what you're going to do is you're going to add in your sparge water. You're basically rinsing the grain to get as much more sugar out of there that you can. Now, there are two different ways to do this as a home brewer. Uh, you can either do a batch sparge where you dump all of your sparge water in and kind of let it sit for a little while, do a, pretty much a mini mash uh, to to try to pull out as much sugar as you can. Or uh, you can do a fly sparge where you're adding in a little bit of water at a time and you're slowly draining it at the same rate that you're adding it in. Yeah, they call that a continuous sparge. Yeah. So after your mash, you're going to uh, fly or batch sparge to pull out all of the remaining sugars uh, and color and all of that that you can. Now, if you're not mashing, then what you would do um, with your specialty grain, if you're doing an extract batch, you will basically go straight into the uh, steeping slash sparging aspect of it where you're going to have your specialty grain, you're going to heat up your water, and you're going to pull out the color and the flavors and that sort of thing from your specialty grain. The mashing will have already happened for you out of the extract that you purchase. Basically what they're going to do is they're going to mash their base grain and convert that mash water into a either a powdered dry malt extract or the liquid malt extract, which is a very thick syrup, pure sugar Uh, And then you're going to add that into your boil whenever you do your uh, brewing process. That's right. Just the uh, all-grain brewing versus extract brewing is very similar. All they do is is basically cut out the the whole mashing element uh, to create the the extract. And um, I mean, you're going to pay a little bit more for uh, extract than you will for base grain just because you're paying for the convenience and the fact that they've already done that whole process for you. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you can get great results from either one. I don't, I don't want anybody to think that 
all grain brewing is the end all be all because it's not. I mean, you can brew a fantastic beer from extract. Actually, my first uh, ever first place beer that I submitted for our local homebrew competition was an extract yeah. beer. You can so, win awards with extract recipes. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, it it takes out a lot of the variants that you can get from all grain. Uh, you have a little bit more control over all grain. Yes. Um, on various different things, like I mentioned before, the mash temperature. If you want a thicker-bodied, less fermentable type wort, then you're going to mash at a higher temperature, and that's where you're going to get your body from. You can't really do that with extract. You have to add in unfermentable sugars to up the mouthfeel a little bit, which it's still possible to do. It's just adding in a little bit extra with that. So anyway, that's the whole mashing part of it. The next... Um, Part of the brewing process is your boil. As soon as you lauder and sparge off all of your sweet wort, you're going to put it in your boil kettle, and you're going to reach a boil. Now, at this point, if you're doing extract, you're going to reach a boil, add in your extract, and then reach a boil again, and then you'll start your boil timer. If you're doing all grain, you'll just reach your boil, start your timer, and uh, if you're doing uh, basic two-row base grain, you'll probably have a 60-minute boil. If you're doing a Pilsner base grain, then you'll have a 90-minute boil, and that's just to uh, boil off the extra DMS, which can produce some off flavors. So depending on the style that you're brewing, you'll have a different boil time. But most of the time, if you're doing an ale with regular two-row base grain, then you'll have a 60-minute boil. And uh, same thing with extract. It'll be a 60-minute boil. Once that timer starts, if you have a... Uh, 60 minute bittering addition on your hops that's when you're going to toss it in ah this is what uh, Sawyer asked about earlier right exactly yeah when are you going to add the hops in oh no 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 that's not that wasn't my specific question no my specific question is when do you add the bittering hops in so whenever you're adding in your hops and this can go for adjuncts as well the earlier you put it in the more it will affect the bitterness um the later you add it in the the more it will affect the flavoring and the aroma quick story i was at a bar the other day story time yeah story time gather around kids hey (laughs) gather around the campfire um so i was at a bar the other night and um it seemed that this person the bartender was very into home brewing but it just made me laugh on the inside when he commented on this one beer saying that the bitterness hops go in at the end of the boil that's a little bit of misinformation right there. Yeah, and I was like, no. Nah. Like, I wanted to say something, but I really couldn't because I don't want to be a, you know, I don't want to be mean. Right. Sure. So. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of different ways to do the hops. And, and like I mentioned before, if you put them in right at the 60-minute mark, right at the beginning of your boil, that's where your bitterness comes from. Uh, later affects more flavor and aroma. And then there's something that happens after the boil once you're in your fermenter, the dry hop, and that will <clears throat> strictly affect uh, flavor and aroma. Yeah, and when you're when you're adding the hops in at the beginning, that's when they impart the things that uh, we talked about earlier, as far as bitterness and the uh, the lupulin, and then the compounds that you're adding in. Uh, the longer you boil it, something that happens is called isoamorization, and what that is is the compounds are converted into what we need. In order to to sustain the beer for uh, to ward off the spoilage and all the things that we talked about earlier, and uh, so the later you add that in, the less time there is to boil off these compounds, 
And so if, if you're done with the boil and you toss in the hops, well, all the flavors and aromas are still trapped within the beer, so they haven't had a chance to, to boil off and dissipate into the atmosphere. So those things are going to be very present. If you add something towards the beginning, well, pretty much all the flavors and aromas are going to uh, boil off and disappear. The only thing you're left with is the bitterness that's gained from the mm-hmm. ice aromatization. Just be sure that you don't drop your hops on the ground. <laughs> Well, anyway. Hops on the ground. Hops on the ground. Uh, looking like talk, a fool with your hops Because then the someone's going to have to help you pick it up, and yeah. he's going to complain. Yeah. Don't make fun of you. Yeah, that too. Just to kind of expand on the preservation aspect of hops, there's a style that I want to mention really quick, the India Pale Ale IPA. Um, basically, what happened is whenever they would send the beer from the British Isles out to the India trade routes, it, it would go bad before it reaches destination, and so it was not a very good beer. And they realized that hops were a natural preservative, and so they would add a lot more hops in order for the beer to be able to survive the voyage. So that's where that style comes from. So yes, hops are a natural preservative. Anyway, so the next part of the brewing process is the cooling. After you boil, you want to get the uh, the, the wort to cool as quickly as possible because um, there's a, a real danger zone between boiling and the cool temperatures where uh, bacteria and other things in the air really thrive and you want to keep that to a minimum. So getting from boiling down to pitching temperature, uh, what I mean by that is uh, the temperature that you pitch your yeast, you want to get to that as quickly as possible Um, because like I said, the natural wild bacteria do not they can't survive in the boiling temperature, and they don't do real well at the cooler uh, 60-ish degree range. So you want to get that wart down as quickly as possible. Now, once you pitch your yeast, um, that's when it's really important that you control the temperature that the fermentation happens. Uh, if you're doing a, a style that it doesn't matter. Like last week when we talked about our Saison, you want all those yeast characters to come out. That happens at a hotter temperature. But normally, your ales will ferment between about 64 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit, and lagers will ferment at uh, less than that in the uh, about 50 degree range. That's where you want you ferment your lagers at. Exactly right. We mentioned earlier that yeast are living organisms, and they are affected by the environment. And so you want to make sure that you play, you pay careful attention to that uh, as far as the temperature that it is, the uh, ambient temperature and the temperature of the wort whenever it's fermenting, uh, just as far as whether you, you have it in direct sunlight or not. All of these things, they, they make a difference. And you want to treat the yeast like it's a living organism because that's what it is. And I would think probably the most important part of the brewing process is the fermentation. Um, I know when I first started home brewing, I, I would kind of control the temperature. I'd put it in my house in the carboy and just kind of let it sit, whatever it was at. It was it was mostly okay. Um, whenever I got to, I remember specifically, it was a wheat beer. And I let it ferment like I usually do. It was in my bathroom. It was usually a little bit cooler in there, about 70 degrees. Um, but since it was summer, it did get a little bit warmer. And I got some really bad off flavors. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeast specifically, I got a lot of bubble gum. Yeah. And bubble gum in a wheat beer is an is a negative thing. And at that point, I was like, you know what? If I'm going to spend all this time brewing this beer, I want to make sure that it's exactly what I want it to be. And so that's when I purchased um, 
something that I could put the carboy in, control the temperature, and everything since then has been much better. You wouldn't think that would make such a big difference, but it really does. I, I do remember whenever Chris served that that first glass, he was like, there's, there's just something about it. Something I couldn't put right. my finger on it. And then, yeah, and then somebody said bubble gum. I think it was you, Travis. Was, I said bubble gum, and then he was like, oh, my God, that's that's yeah, all it, I can get. You're yeah. right. And yeah. it was it was horrible. I kind of had to stomach. I've never poured out a homebrew, but that one probably was the closest I've ever gotten. Temperature control is everything. Yes. I mean, yes, it really is. Yeah, it is. You I, know, I mean, my like apartment, I said, it's the most important part of the brewing process, I my, think. My apartment is ridiculously cold right now just to keep my carboy at, like... <laughs> 70 <laughs> sacrifices it, yeah yes. well, so I'm, 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 I'm covering up with blankets as i walk through my apartment well, that's you know? fine you know it's it's something that in the brewing process it's worth spending the money on mm-hmm. buy a temperature controller buy a chamber you know i agreed I, I bought a little mini freezer off of craigslist for like 50 bucks and you know took the shelves out kind of bent some some cooling lines around to where i could fit a carboy in there put a johnson temperature controller on it and I can set it whatever I want, and my fermentation temps since then have been just fine. And those Johnson temperature controllers are awesome. Yeah, they control they the are. temperature within one or two degrees of what you really it's want. It's definitely worth wow. spending the money on a really good temperature controller fermentation chamber yeah. setup. I've got one on my kegerator. It's you awesome. Will, you will notice a big difference in the quality of your homebrew. So if you get anything out of this episode, fermentation control is definitely key. And the I'm pretty sure... Thing. At the commercial level, uh, they use um, their fermentation vessels are conical stainless steel that they use glycol cooling systems on to keep them at a very consistent temperature. Because when you're brewing the same thing over and over and over again on a commercial level, you would expect it to be the same. When I go to the store and I buy a beer, I want it to be the exact same every single time. So those commercial brewers are very consistent with their temperature, their ingredients, everything. Speaking of beer, we're out of beer. Somebody needs to go get some more then. I will go get more beer. I'll right. be right back. I'm going to continue talking about this. The next Please. thing on the brewing process is the packaging, which we'll talk more in depth about this in a second. But I just want to make a quick point between the differences of kegging and bottling. Um, now, as a home brewer, those are two completely different aspects. Um, I have actually only bottled <laughs> one beer that I brewed, and... It is, it's very labor intensive and it's really hard to control because you have to add in priming sugar. Uh, basically, the yeast will consume the sugar in your beer to give you the alcohol. And in order for it to carbonate, you have to add in a little bit more sugar for the yeast to consume to create the carbonation. And if you're not careful, and you add either too much sugar or you might happen to repitch the yeast because that's what you read on the internet to do. And that's a mistake, by the way, because that's what I did. And you get bottle bombs. So much pressure from the CO2 is built up in the bottle and you get little explosions. And it's really not a good thing to deal with. Um, it's very messy and dangerous because if you happen to be standing by one of those bottles uh, that explodes that could be a very bad situation to be in. Now, I don't want to I don't want to discourage you from bottling. It just you need to be very careful about how much priming sugar you add and um the temperature that you let it get to. Yeah, on the other hand, whereas Chris has done one batch in bottles, 
I have done upwards of 20 in bottles because I did that for pretty much the first four or five years of my homebrewing experience. All I did was bottling. And I've had good experiences with the vast majority of them as far as uh, carbonation level, as far as uh, not having any explosions or anything weird happen. It's As long as you, you're consistent, you pay attention to what you're doing, and you measure it out, then you're going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah, sure, there there are some things that you can tweak as far as some styles like uh, last week we did Saison. You'd want to have more carbonation, more effervescence with those. So you'd want to have a, a higher level of, of uh, priming sugar to let that go. But if you have another style like a mild, well, then you're going to want to have a, a, a lower amount because those are not supposed to be overflowing with, with head and, and, and bubbles. So, yeah, it, as long as you're paying attention to what you're doing, then you'll be fine. Yeah, just make sure that your beer is fermented out completely. I mean, if you yes. if you pull the beer off before it's done fermenting, you're going to have more sugar in there, and then you add your priming sugar, and you know that's, that's just an accident waiting to happen. So be completely sure that your, your wort has fermented out completely before you decide to bottle. And be careful not to use too much priming sugar when you bottle. Exactly. Because that will overcarbonate the beer. And I had a friend of mine who did that, and it was actually a Saison beer, and it was actually too overcarbonated. Mm. So... So anyway, that th- that's bottling in a nutshell. Um, as far as kegging goes, uh, when whenever you keg, there are a couple of ways that you can do it. You can actually add your priming sugar to the keg with your beer and not have to worry about uh, force carbonating with CO2. Uh, you can do some natural carbonation in the keg, which is completely viable, uh, a completely viable option. Now, what most people do with kegging is they will use CO2 to force carbonate the beer, which there are two ways that you can do that. You can either set your pressure and let it sit for a week or so, um, which I should mention, when you when you bottle carbonate, it usually takes about two weeks to get a good carbonation set up. Uh, in, the, in the keg, if you let it naturally uh, carbonate with priming sugar and the yeast, then it will take the same amount of two weeks. If you are going to force carbonate with the CO2, you can either just set your pressure and let it sit and naturally carbonate that way, or you can force carbonate it, which is what I usually do, set to a high pressure, usually about 30 PSI or so, and just rock the keg for 10, 15, 20 minutes, uh, and then kind of bleed off the pressure and then set your pressure. And you can, I've actually had beer a couple hours after I've kegged it that way. It's not completely carbonated, but it's it's good enough to, to get a good um, a good taste of it. I'll usually wait 24 hours before I start drinking it to get a, a, a full carbonation and have it actually you know, pour correctly, good head, all that kind of stuff. So there are a couple of ways to do it. The vast majority of commercial brews are going to be uh, carbonated before it gets into the bottle or the keg. Correct. You don't find it very often. They'll uh, When it sits in the bright tank as it's fermenting and, and conditioning, then they let the natural carbonation kind of build up, and then whenever they put that in either the keg or the bottle, then it has enough carbonation to, to sustain it beyond that. So when you are bottling uh, as a home brewer, you're going to have yeast sediment at the bottom. You want to be really careful and not pour the last little bit of the beer. In the keg, uh, if you're kegging with CO2, you'll have a little bit of sediment. That's just from the brewing process uh, after the first dozen or so pours, it should clarify a little bit, and it'll be fine. I actually like to bottle from my keg 
and the process that I'll use for that is uh, after the beer's already been carbonated, I will uh, bleed off all the pressure from my keg and then set it to just where it registers on the gauge, usually about 1 or 2 PSI. And then I'll put the bottle up to the tap, open up the tap, and let the beer slowly pour into the bottle. You want to be really careful not to get any foam or any head because you want to keep that CO2 carbonation in suspension in the liquid. You don't want it to reach the air. So you just got to be really careful, pour slowly, and be patient. I've bottled this way and left it for weeks, cracked it open, still have plenty of carbonation. So really good option. How's that Trappist? Well, that's the one that I bottled. and Yes. Yeah, we won't talk about that. <laughs> so anyway, there's the brewing uh, and packaging process in a nutshell. We could spend dozens of episodes talking about brewing, um, but we're not going to do that at this point. Yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of information, but uh, it's important and it's part of Beer 101. So let's uh, let's move on to some general style notes, and sorry is going to bring that to us next. So now we're moving on to basic styles of beer, and there's really only two categories of these: uh, ales and lagers. And we're just going to talk about the differences between the two, because not a lot of us know the differences. Um, so let's start with ales. First of all, ales are fermented warm and made with top fermenting yeast, which is a yeast that rises to the top of the, uh, of the brew during fermentation. So a lot of krausen on the top of the beer. You'll see it on the sides of your, your carboy pretty easily. Uh, it's generally stronger and more forceful in taste than longers because of their relatively fast and warmer fermentation. Um, you'll have ales that basically ferment from anywhere from 68 to, I don't know, what, 72, 73 degrees Fahrenheit, not Celsius, because, my God. Um, <laughs> and then, again, with ales, many countries, including England, serve their ales at cellar temperatures, and I did use quotations on that one, 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, so not too cold, but... Versus the regular refrigerator-type Right. Temperatures so lower yeah. than fifty. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. okay. you know when you when you go into I don't know a restaurant you'll probably find beer at what thirty two. Yeah, it's probably cold storage. Yeah. yeah. I know that with with a restaurant right near my apartment it's very very cold. Yeah. According to their sign, who knows the sign might be wrong. I don't yeah. know. Well, I mean, you go into some restaurants and they advertised our beers at thirty two degrees. Well, okay, that that might be fine for certain styles, but not every style you want to be served at almost freezing temperatures. So, right. I mean, I don't want to blonde that that cold. I mean, that, that's typically the uh, the ABC, Anheuser-Busch Coors-type beers that are served. Coors? Yeah. But those are lagers. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, only two Coors, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> All right. And then moving on to lagers. This, again, this is very short. Uh, lagers from the German word lagern, meaning to store are made with a bottom or cold fermenting yeast that sinks to the bottom of the brew during the fermentation process. Completely opposite from ales. Okay? Right, yeah. Um, while ales can be brewed in as little as seven days, lagers traditionally need to be aged uh, before their brewing process is complete. This can increase their brewing their brewing time to a month or more. Yeah, I, we were talking about um, home brewing earlier. 
when we were talking about the, the brewing process itself. And a really important note for if you're brewing a lager is you want to make sure that you do the diacetyl rest, which basically uh, after the fermentation happens at the sub-50 degrees, you will raise the temperature slightly so that the yeast can clean up after themselves, kind of get rid of all the off flavors, clean up the diacetyl, which is an off flavor. Um, and then you'll cool it back down for the actual lagering, or as the German word said, storing for uh, several weeks to a month to uh, really get everything cleaned up and, and ready to drink. Right, and which leads to my next statement. The lager process creates beers with a generally cleaner, smoother, crisper, and more mellow taste. So think about the last time you had a Coors Light, the last time you had a Miller Light, Bud Light. Think about the taste of that. Yeah. What was it like? It was very smooth and crisp. Uh, not a whole lot of flavor, though. Right. <laughs> so more mellow. Right, yeah. yeah. One of them had uh, had flavor from water from the Rockies, as cool as the Rockies. <laughs> One of them had a Blue triple, triple hops brewed flavor. Yeah. Yep. Actually, no, they all tasted the same. Yeah, they all tasted the same. Exactly <laughs> yep. the same. Yeah. Anyways, that's the difference between ales and lagers. Anyone else have anything they want to add? Yeah, let's uh, let's just mention a few of the basic ale styles and basic lager styles. Good idea. So the last two episodes, we talked about the pale ale. I'll let you guess which part of those two styles going to lager. Uh, no, that would oh. be an ale. Pale, pale lager ale. Pale ale. <laughs> and the saison is also an ale because that was a warmer fermenting. Right. Yeah, so definitely not a lager. So those exactly. are two. If yeah. it has ale in the name, it's more than likely an ale. Really? Just saying. Oh. Uh, also, a lot a lot of dark beers. Not all of them, but things like porters, stouts, uh, and some, some brown ales. They're all going to be on the ale family. All of the wheat beers, Hefeweizen, things like that, are all going to be ales as well. Blonde. Yes, as well as uh, Belgians. And uh, Belgian Blonde, Dubol, Triple, and uh, Barley Wines. Pretty much anything that has a very vibrant or or strong aroma and flavor, it's going to be an ale. Imperial Any- Blonde. <laughs> anything that's going to be uh, a smoother, um, crisper, Crisp, is going to be more of the lager style. Yeah. So we talked about... Um, Miller Lite, Coors Light, Bud Light. Those are all American pale lagers. Coors. Yeah. Coors. Yeah, Pilsners. And even some that you wouldn't think about uh, as far as lagers, like uh, Oktoberfest, Mars and Fest beers. Box. Yes. All of those are are lager styles. Now, when I say Bach, please don't uh, confuse that with Shiner Bach. Or Johann Sebastian Bach. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Uh, Shiner Bach is not technically a Bach. If so, you're if you're from if you're from Texas, Shinerbach is a very very popular uh, beer, and it's not technically a Bach. So what is it? In the 2008 BGCP styles, it was known as an American dark lager, but it has changed our dark American lager 4A for the old ones. For the new ones, I don't have that pulled up. But uh, it's something similar. It's it's still not classified as a Bach, but it's something yeah. similar. So yeah. Anyway, that's uh, our our base between ale and lager. Thank you very little. 
All right, so next we're going to talk about uh, packaging. Yay, packaging! (laughs) We mentioned briefly earlier the difference between kegging and bottling, so now let's go a little bit more in detail about bottles. Now, there are three different types of bottles that you will see. Uh, Clear, green, and brown. Now, the clear bottles are the cheapest to produce. It's just plain glass. There's no color pigment or anything involved with that. So the issue with that, though, is you have 0% protection from sunlight, and that will give you some flaws in the beer, which we'll talk about in a minute. The next one that you can have is a green glass bottle. That will give you about 10 to 20% protection from sunlight. So it's better than clear, but not as good as the brown. Clear. Yeah. I mean... If you've if you've had a beer, a Heineken is in a glass. Uh, yeah. Sorry, a green bottle. Bex, mm, um, mm, Bex, Bex mm, is Bex. in a green bottle. Um, some of the clear bottles you might see. Corona is a very common one. Yes, Corona. Uh, so Pacifico. Yeah, <laughs> we'll talk more about that stuff in a minute. But uh, the clear and the green. Uh, the green bottles uh, started to become really popular after World War II. Uh, there was a lot of green glass available, and so that's what they used. The next one that probably is the most common one nowadays is the brown bottle. The brown bottle gives you about 80% protection from sunlight, and it's preferred by many of the craft brewers for that very reason. It's the best protection against sunlight that you can get out of glass. Um there's another brewery that also advertises the fact that their six-pack carriers, the cardboard carriers that the bottles come in, have a higher wall than others. I believe it's Sam Adams. Um, they have a, a brown bottle plus the high-top cardboard, which really protects the beer against sunlight. Mm-hmm. And it's not only sunlight that can, that can affect your beer. The UV lights in stores also can uh, skunk the beer and give you some off flavors. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that's why the majority of craft brewers pick the brown bottle. The other option, obviously, is cans. Now, the plus side to cans is it gives you 100% protection from sunlight, and it also protects the best from oxygen. Those cans are completely sealed. When you have a bottle, you've got the crown cap that's crimped on top, or you have the screw top. Um, those have little oxygen barriers in the caps that are built in, but it's not a complete 100% seal. It's pretty close, very close. I'd say maybe 99%, but you can't be completely certain with a crimp or a screw. With the cans, though, you can be pretty positive that it's a completely sealed system until you crack the top open. Yeah, and you have to be careful with the bottles that you use as well, especially when you're bottling. Um, Homebrew bottling? Yes, homebrew bottling. Um, Some bottles have small lips. Some have larger lips. So, you know, the ones with smaller lips have a harder time yeah, sealing. When you're well when you're crimping with the, the crimping device, if it's got a deeper lip on it, then the crimper has a better surface area to grab onto. So right. you're better better off in getting a good seal on that. Right, right. Yeah. So if you can, if you're normally where we get our bottles from is we'll, you know, buy a six pack commercially and drink the beer, then clean up the bottle, delabel it. You know, sanitize it and reuse that for homebrewing. And it's awesome. And it works perfectly. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to buy bottles, you might as well get them with beer in it, right? Heck yeah. <laughs> Why not? It's a twofer. Yeah, I mean, if you go to the homebrew store and you buy bottles, I mean, you're just buying the bottle. 
I, I would rather have it with beer in it. Oh, me too. I mean, I don't want to go to a homebrew supply store and buy just empty bottles. <clears throat> I know Travis is partial to these Sam Adams bottles. He likes to buy the Sam Adams and, you know, repurpose them for homebrewing. I think there's a lot of qualities to that. One, personally, I like to have all of my homebrew bottles have the same look, the same feel, and so I, I do the same brand. And then with the Sam Adams bottles, they have a large lip at the top, right. which is useful for crimping on the uh, the bottle caps and uh, it, it's hard to see or it's hard to visualize unless you you know what i'm talking about but some bottles have a, a very large lip at the top and then some have a very skinny one yeah and so your crimping device is basically a big claw that you put over the top of it and then you kind of crimp over it and then it pushes the bottle cap which whenever it's uncrimped the bottle cap is all spread out it's like a, a big a big uh, starfish or jellyfish that's flattened out. And so then the uh, the crimping device pushes in the edges around the side, which holds it there, and then that, that provides a, uh, a an airtight seal or a watertight seal. And then there's one of us here that likes the short, stubby bottles. And I think we kind of touched on that a while back. <laughs> I don't well, want to touch a short, stubby. Don't. Well, I didn't touch it either. I'm just saying. The the short bottles I did mainly for the fact that they fit underneath the shelf that I have in my kegerator. So when I do bottle a beer, they all fit in there and I don't have to you know worry about now you're space to them, though. issues. Now, well, yeah, they, they work just fine. And you could always go with swing top bottles as well. Yep. Which provide a much better seal most of the time. Well, eh, I mean... It's all pressure pressurized like you know the rubber pushing down on the glass right so still you, you the have... best seal that you can get is a can but sure. as True. a home brewer not really an option but if you're using bottles yeah swing top. i've had no issues with my crimp caps so i have well that's because you had the little tiny lip bottles i know those things were terrible and you broke three bottles while we were bottling your because beer. i don't know my own strength no, I had nothing to do with it. Oh. Anyway, so those <laughs> those are the different ways that you can package your beer. Now, uh, just going into the flaws that you can get, we kind of wanted to put these two things together because the flaws that you get out of your beer can have a lot to do with your packaging. Some of it has to do with brewing, process, fermentation, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, the most common ones have to do with packaging because, as Travis mentioned earlier, once the brewers brew the beer, they package it, and they send it off, they have no control over it whatsoever. Okay, So the first thing that I wanted to talk about um, <clears throat> was a skunked beer. Now, this is probably the most common one that you get and is primarily from the clear or wow. the green glass bottles. Speaking of which, I'm going to go get... An example of this that we can try out. I'll be right back. Yeah, he he brought one specifically for this part of the conversation. So let's talk about skunked momentarily. Now, skunked beers have to do with the beer itself being light struck. Now, what happens when the beer is light struck is the compounds between the hops and the alcohol and the UV lights will um, give this beer uh, the skunked flavor and aroma and we say skunk because well i mean everybody has smelt a skunk uh it's very pungent it's very sour uh very bitter if you've had a heineken or a corona you have no doubt experienced the skunk and 
I believe we may have talked about this previously, but Heineken had uh, – there was a story in the news recently about how somebody bought them out and changed the Heineken recipe, and a lot of people complained because it wasn't what they expected Heineken to be. And what happened was that they took the skunkiness out of the Heineken um, and people complained, so they put it back in. So that's a very Heineken-ish thing and a very Corona-ish thing. And so Travis brought a bottle of Corona Extra, which is in a clear glass bottle. That's right. So we're going to try this uh, as we as we talk about the different flaws. I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to try this and see kind of how uh, how this process works. And so what we're going to do is, is we're all going to try a sample of it, but I'm also going to pour a small bit into a separate glass, and then I'd like to set that outside. It's a, it's a little cloudy today, but it should be enough to, to make a difference. We're going to set this outside in the sunlight and see... See if we can skunk it some more. Yeah, even just in, in the small amount of time that we're doing this segment, and then go outside, get it, and see uh, how sunlight can affect beer, because it affects all beer. But uh, depending on the packaging, it uh, it can either come through less or come through more. So for those of you that are very scientific and like the science side of things, I, I know I do, here's a little bit more information exactly how skunk happens. So I already mentioned that the skunk occurs when the beer is exposed to UV light. But the specific part that happens... You can already smell it. <laughs> Specifically what happens is the, the hop molecules are ripped apart and they bind to sulfur atoms, which create the skunkiness in the beer. So, Bye, Travis. I'll be right back. Part of what you're getting out of the skunk is sulfur. All right, so let's try this Corona. I got to hurry up and drink. <laughs> it's, I hate to say it, pea yellow. Yeah. <laughs> Typically, we'll do a tasting section of uh, our our podcast, but this is a, a different format. This is clearly to um, talk about the skunkiness yeah. of a beer. And I think the light beer in the clear glass bottle is much more susceptible to the UV light. From the moment we poured it, oh, no matter God. where you were in the room, we could smell. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I can't smell it yet. <laughs> I can that bottle is so clear. It's very very skunky in the aroma. You know what? It smells more skunk than it tastes. Yeah. But still, when whenever I pour a beer that I'm trying, I will look at it. The first taste is with your eyes. Then I'll smell it, and then I will taste it. And the smell alone would turn me off from this beer yeah. pretty much instantly just because it's skunked. Honestly, that's that's what Corona drinkers have come to expect. They they know that's what the beer smells like. They know what it tastes like. That's why it's always served with a well, lime. I, I right. would I would be interested to taste this fresh in Mexico versus the imported Corona and see if there's a difference. Because we've had domestic Dos Equis and we've also had Mexican Dos Equis because somebody that we worked with mm-hmm. would go down to visit his family in Mexico and bring back fresh Dos Equis and it Definitely tasted different. Now, Dos Equis is in a green bottle, but still, it was it was a different experience than buying it at the store. So, field trip? <laughs> you know, there was a short-lived experience that Corona did with a, uh, a 32-ounce brown bottle in which they put the Corona 
in a brown bottle, and they called it Corona Especial. And it was it was basically just Corona in a brown bottle. But so many Corona drinkers oh my God. have have come to know it as <laughs> this as this entity. Same thing with Heineken. Yeah, it is what it is. They know what they it smells it. like. They know yeah. what it tastes like. That's what you want. And then if it changes, well, people hate change. So no, it's not okay. The smell of this beer is god awful. Oh my god! <laughs> now, Corona's actually. I've seen some billboards around. They're actually canning now. Good. So I would be interested to see mm, because yeah. this beer smells terrible. <laughs> we already talked about how the difference yep. in the can and, and bottles. So I, you know, yep. it'd be an interesting experiment to get a bottle and a can side by side, see how they differ. But anyway, so that's that's skunked. It's definitely I I would see it as one of the largest flaws uh, that that you can get. The other flaw that I wanted to talk about was oxidization. Now, if you have a beer that's oxidized, uh, what happens is the oxygen molecules bind to the wort compounds um, in in the the cooling process, and you want a good amount of oxygen in the beer for the yeast to thrive. And they will consume most of the oxygen out of the wort. Um, but if you have a either a cap or a swing top or something that doesn't completely protect the beer from oxygen, you can get a lot of cardboard, sherry-like uh, flavors in the beer. And it, it really detracts from what it is that you would want to have as a, as a home brewer or a commercial brewer. Um, usually that would happen from either over oxidizing the beer. If you're transferring from a primary to a secondary after fermentation and you get some, some bubbles, that's a, a key indication that you oxidized it and you might have some issues there. But the, the biggest thing that you can, uh, expect to get from oxidization is a weak seal on the cap of your beer. So you want to be really careful against something like that. Again, small bottles. Yeah. We, we wanted to highlight these two things because these are the two flaws that you are most likely to see as a consumer drinking commercial beer. Uh, if there is some sort of flaw in the brewing process, the majority of commercial brewers are going to catch that before it leaves their house. They're going to see, okay, well, there's something wrong with the smell, the flavor, and then they'll just eat the batch and then dump it. But uh, as, as a commercial brewery, once it leaves your once it leaves your brewery, then you're out of control of what happens to it. So the the most likely problems are going to be skunked, which is the light struck, and then oxidization through the uh, the permeation of oxygen into the beer, and then the slow release of it over time. As home brewers, we have to be more concerned about other flaws, but those are things that are going to be caught and then taken care of well before it ever hits the commercial shelves. Now, as a home brewer, I want to mention two flaws that I think are probably uh, the most common one of them is green beer uh, if you get a green apple flavor that means that the beer is on the younger side uh, you would want to let it ferment a little bit more let it age some more on the yeast after fermentation the yeast like to uh, you know they'll clean up after themselves get some of those off flavors and and things like that so if you pull it off the yeast cake too soon you're going to get the green apple uh, young beer flavor Travis just went out to get our, our beer from the sun. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, while he's doing that, the other one that I wanted to mention, the one of the other most common homebrew uh, faults 
which kind of falls more in the lager category. If you don't do that diacetyl rest that I mentioned earlier when brewing a lager, you're going to get uh, a lot of diacetyl in your beer, which comes across as a buttery uh, flavor and kind of a slimy mouthfeel. So if you're brewing a lager, you want to make sure that you get that diacetyl rest in there. Give the yeast plenty of time to clean up that diacetyl. So Travis just tasted our sunstruck Corona that we set outside for a minute. And your opinion on that? Yeah, it's been outside for maybe about five minutes. and uh, It's definitely warmer. <laughs> the, yeah. ar- the aroma is... <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the moral of the story is it does not take long for oh. ultraviolet rays to take their toll on the Oh, beer. wow. Oh, my God. Wow. What in the... Oh, my. <laughs> Once the UV rays hit the uh, hit the beer, then the, uh, the hot molecules start to fall apart. It doesn't take long at all. That tastes Especially like... Especially in a clear... Because this is a clear glass. Yeah. I, and I put it in direct sunlight. Well, you know, it comes in a clear bottle. Yeah. May as well put it in a clear glass. That is... So, God awful. Yeah, For the amount of time we've done this segment, which is maybe five, ten minutes, it's it's gone from what we initially were complaining about to much worse. To issues. It's way worse. Like, oh my god. So alright, the next segment we're gonna move through pretty quickly is about different glassware. And uh you might not think this is very important, but it really is. The, the as Chris has said before, the first taste is with your eyes, and a well-made glass or a well-made beer glass will accentuate the good qualities of any beer. And each style should have a certain style, a certain style glassware that will truly accentuate what is best about it. And there's going to be a difference between each one. So I'm going to go through some of them today, and uh, we will uh, we'll have an article on our website, brewstyles.com, that will also go through several of the different glassware styles and we'll include pictures of those so that you can uh, become familiarized with what different styles there are. So if we start with the basic beer glass people think of is a tumbler and that's the very it's, it's a stock beer glass. It uh, It's what you can find basically at any bar. It really doesn't do much other than hold liquid. It's honestly, it's meant for holding cocktails, meant for tumbling and mixing cocktails, not really drinking out of it. But then it turned into the uh, turned into the light American lager beer glass, and so probably one of the cheapest glasses to make because it's very simple. But yes. it's an awesome glass. Well, I mean, it's it serves its purpose. It holds liquid. So Look, you put a fancy design on it. It's an awesome glass. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you have a plain one, it's still an awesome glass. Yeah, yeah. it's it's pretty standard. Doesn't do much. Just holds liquid. Holds beer. And so, um, you know, that's that's what you're going to see a lot of places, but there, there's a there's a whole another world out there, as far as glassware. And I've been collecting glassware for upwards of maybe six, seven years, and uh, so I know a thing or two about different styles of glassware. So if you take that same tumbler and then change it just a little bit, it becomes a pint glass, and a pint glass which will hold a a true pint, so 16 ounces of liquid. And these are usually involved with the English and German varieties. It's most notable for a slight bubble at the top, where either the uh, the top two-thirds of it are sloped out and then back in, or if the uh, top one-third has a very small bubble, then that will be a pint glass. And typically with uh, these, there's going to be a line that will, uh, that will notate where a full pint is, so that way you, know, you don't get gypped on your, your pint 
Yeah, it's not going to be all the way up to the rim of the glass. There's going to be a specific point on the glass that would be considered a pint. Correct. That's right. Every uh, every beer should be poured with the majority liquid and then a, a certain amount of head at the top. That's a correct pour. Head or space. So uh, <laughs> a pint glass is uh, it has a bit more flourish than the standard pint, and and that's part just to just to really accentuate the the appearance of the beer. And that's appropriate for bitters, milds, porters, and stouts. Now, uh, you can change more from there to uh, something called a Pilsner glass, which is very tall and slender. And it almost has kind of a trumpet bell shape at the top. So it's going to flourish out. And that one's appropriate for Pilsners. And it's going to showcase a brilliant color while still maintaining the head. So if you have a uh, maybe a Czech Pilsner or something like that, you're going to be able to look through it, see all the bubbles coming from the bottom all the top. And then this brilliant light golden color, and then still maintaining a big, uh, big frothy head at the top, and that's specific for that style. Is that like a fruity glass? No, a fruity glass would be an example of a flute, which a flute is. Uh, it's like a champagne glass, so it's going to have typically has a stem, but uh, it has straight sides that go up, and it's very very slender. And this is going to showcase effervescence and brilliance while still maintaining carbonation. This is going to be uh, appropriate for fruit beers and lambics, uh, which is what fruity would be. Now you can also have tulips, which uh, I think Chris talked about in the previous episode with saisons, which it has a it's a very basic tulip shape. It usually has a stem, and then it'll come out has a wide bowl, comes back in towards the middle, and then at the top it'll flare out in a trumpet shape. And which is the shape of a tulip. The the tulip slash snifter is probably my favorite glassware to drink of drink out of at this point. Why? The presentation is nice. I mean, you, you can see the color very easily because it's kind of deeper. And the tulip shape really helps to kind of focus in the aroma. You can get your nose in there and really smell on it you know, pretty good. Absolutely. Having, the, cool. having the wide base pretty and then good. cool coming back in at the top that's going to capture and enhance the aromas because it has all the things in there then it just kind of forces it out and then the when it reflourishes out of the top that's going to induce and hold a foamy head and so this is appropriate for ipas belgian saisons anything where you want you want to have a nice thick head and then really induce those aromas and anything that uh, that could bring that out now we can also have uh, very tall glasses which are called weizen weizen glasses and these are going to be tall and curvy, very accentuated. They showcase uh, color and appearance, and they lock in the aroma. So anytime you have a German Hefeweizen or a wheat beer, this is going to be appropriate glass to use for those. Uh, and then, I know we're going through this quickly, but there's a lot of, a lot of glassware. And there's several that we're going to leave off today. You can find these other ones on our website, brewstyles.com. But I'm going to move on. Uh, the next one is called a snifter. And this is your typical, uh, if you're drinking a brandy or a fine liquor, then this is what you would use. But this can be used for a beer as well. So it's going to have a wide bowl. It's usually stemmed. has a tapered mouth. This is going to capture and enhance any volatiles you have in this, so, such as uh, the strong aromas, strong flavors. Anything that would be uh, that you'd want to smell, want to taste, it's going to really enhance that. So this would be appropriate for barley wines, strong ales, sours, Russian imperial stouts. A lot of the really big, heavy beers you'd want to have in a snifter. 
Uh, we can also have goblets and, and chalices. Those two are different. They always have... Uh, this is what you think of as like the uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's a chalice. <laughs> I've seen that movie. Stemmed glass, you know, bowl at the bottom, straight up to the mm-hmm. top kind of thing, right? Yes, and typically they can be ornate. You can have like lots of designs, some maybe gold etching, uh, jewels, whatever you want. Painting. I have several uh, that I've picked up that have been hand-painted. Maybe wow. they're, they're made out of porcelain, could be made out of stone, could be made out of glass. And Interesting. It's, yeah, it's just... It's something different than your standard beer glass. Yes. And uh, so these are... These are typically going to be for beers of Belgium made, like uh, the Double, Trippel, Quads, Trappist. And it's uh, basically just a, a traditional way to drink them. So, and then uh, we can move on to another one, which would be the Mug or the Stein. And these are also traditionally German made. Uh, they're heavy, they're sturdy, they're handled. And uh, the Steins traditionally would have a lid, and that dates back to the, the, the medieval ages where the plague was really big and so they would put a lid on the top of their beer glass <laughs> to prevent flies from dropping in. I don't want the plague in my beer. That way you don't yeah. Don't <laughs> drink sounds, a beer and then wake up dead. That sounds painful. Wake up dead. And then wake up dead. He's not dead. I don't I'm think not you'll be dead able to, yet. I think if you're dead you're not gonna be able to wake up. I'm feeling much better. <laughs> I'll be dead in a moment. <laughs> anyway, I we, feel happy, happy. <laughs> Anyway, whenever you see the standard beer mug, that's yeah. kind of what we're talking about. You know, handled, uh, flat-walled, maybe a little bit of uh, dimpled ornation on the sides. But, uh, yeah, it's very German, very yeah. uh, Oktoberfest. And so if you if you are enjoying one of those styles uh, traditionally enjoyed during Oktoberfest, such as the uh, the Marsen or the uh, Fest beer, then you definitely want to want to drink that in a stein or a mug, uh, which is tradition. So there's... Uh, there's many more different glassware styles that we didn't cover today because we're moving along. And you can find these pictures and definitions and descriptions on our website, brewstyles.com. All right, now we're on to talking about tasting beer. Um, when you're doing small portion tastings, kind of like what we're doing here today, we've been tasting beer behind the scenes. Um, you, When you pour the beer, you want to be sure to pour vigorously so you can get the aroma in the head but then pour small portions for each other so you can share. That's rule number one. If Sharing is important. Right. If everyone doesn't have beer, then there's something wrong with that. Everyone must have a beer in their hand. So let's just go down the list real quick. Let's talk about the look. Okay. Take a pause and marvel at its greatness before you partake of it. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, my gosh. That's marvel. The, the first taste is with your eyes. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Indeed. And again, I know I've mentioned it in the in past episodes, but some of us here like clear beer. <clears throat> Raise the beer in front of you, but don't hold your beer to the direct light as this will dilute its true color and then describe its color, its head, and its consistency. So, basically, what do you see without looking through it in direct light? Right. Well, look at the beer, the liquid, and look at the head. Look right. at the glass. What is kind it of lacing? Clear? Is it not? Yeah. Lots what of what lacing did the head leave on the glass? All that's important. Right. And the glass itself could actually taint the color a little bit. Since one of us is drinking out of a tulip glass and uh, us other two here are drinking out of pint glasses. So. Glassware is important. Right. Then agitate. Swirl your beer gently in the glass. 
This will pull out aromas, slight nuances, loosen and stimulate carbonation and test head retention. Mm, yes. Again, yep. this is where you get a lot of your aroma. Okay. Yeah, all from the head. Make sure you agitate. And you'll get this when you pour vigorously down the center of the glass as well. Next thing, we have the smell. 90 to 95% of what you experience is through your sense of smell. Breathe through your nose with two quick sniffs. Then with your mouth open... Then, through your mouth only. <laughs> Nose and mouth are connected in the experience. <laughs> you want to breathe through your mouth? <laughs> hey, I'm just... I'm sorry. Then with... No, I didn't say through your mouth. Oh, yes, I did you, say through yes, your mouth. I apologize. Well, the nose and the mouth are connecting the experience. It's, it's yes. olfactory. It's all, it's all about the overall experience. It's I, all sensory. Yeah. yeah. So it makes sense. Okay, and then and on, the taste. on to taste. Now sip the beer. Sip, not drink a big... Gulp. Yeah. Not... Yeah. So sip the beer. Don't chug. Right. Resist swallowing immediately. Let it wander and explore, <laughs> explore your entire palate. <laughs> okay, I'm good. <laughs> Let your taste buds speak. Note the mouthfeel, the consistency of the liquid's body, and breathe out during the process of tasting. Again, your taste buds will tell you everything you want to know. And sometimes you may not have the same opinion as the person next to you on the beer. So keep that in mind. Well, the whole breathing out through your nose aspect has to do with the olfactory process. And so as your taste buds are experiencing something you can kind of exhale through your nose get the uh, aroma again but in a warmer sense because your mouth has already warmed the beer a little bit mm-hmm. so it's really important give it a shot I, I bet you'll get a different experience try tasting the beer after it warms a bit really cold beer tends to mask some of the flavors as a beer warms its true flavors will pull through become more pronounced yeah this is such a huge thing uh you know whenever you go to a bar that that says that that their beer is at 29 degrees okay yeah it's cold it's it's refreshing it's basically just going to be water but then you won't get any of the flavors the aromas that it's supposed to have and maybe some of the beers are supposed to be served that way you don't want to smell what it actually smells like you don't want to taste what it actually smells like or taste what it tastes like and some styles, though, you want to warm up. Like if you're drinking a stout or a porter, those those styles you want to drink at a warmer temperature. Right. And the aromas will be a lot more pronounced mm-hmm. uh, in those styles after it Absolutely. warms up. So depending on what you're drinking, uh, do a little bit of research right before you drink it and, and see – what temperature they are, you know, traditionally served at, and that will give you a lot better uh, understanding on on what temperature to drink and to smell it to to get the best experience. That's right. There's been many times where I've taken a beer out of the fridge and let it sit in the counter for a long time just to warm up, or I've ordered two beers at once at the bar just to let one warm while I enjoy the other one. Exactly. Uh, depending yeah. on the style, you want it to be. The, a correct temperature so that you can really experience the all all his offer as far as aromas and flavors and you don't get that with ice cold beer yeah well sometimes if if the the style calls for it to be super cold you know that's that's where you want it to be like but a lager true. 
Well, sometimes whenever you order a stout or a porter, and it's supposed to be served a little bit warmer, then you know that's where the strongest flavors and the strongest aromas are going to come out. So, very true. Yeah, when you go to a bar to to taste a beer, do your research beforehand. Figure out exactly what temperature it's supposed to be served at. And if you get super cold, you know, let it sit for a second, put it between your hands, and and let your body warm to kind of warm it up a little bit to get it to the correct temperature. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Brew Styles, where our topic of discussion was basics of brewing. Look for our next episode coming soon at brewstyles.com.